Everybody, if you could grab a seat. You have three seconds left if you had something important that you had to do, but I cut you off. <laughs> well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Coastline Covenant to the small and mighty six o'clock service. It is great to see you. And hello to those of you who are watching online on the live stream. Every week we have about 40 devices that log in, one of which who is my grandmother. So, hey, Nan, how are you? Good to see you. Well, good for you to see me, I guess. But I, I'll see you later. See you later. So I was, uh, I was reading in Forbes magazine uh, last week, because that's just the sort of guy I am, the guy who reads Forbes magazine. <laughs> but I saw this article by a guy named William Vanderblumen, uh, who does uh, executive searches, and he was talking about the state of the job market out there today after the pandemic, and he had this incredible quote that grabbed my attention. It says this, that the lockdowns of the spring and remote work since then has given a lot of people a chance to reevaluate why they do what they do. People have had time to think, and the pandemic has made the entire world remember that life is short, fragile, and fleeting. The result is a massive number of people asking big questions about life, vocation, and why they do the job that they do. So I was thinking about this quote because it matched my own experience with so many friends of mine right now whose lives are beginning to look rather different than after the pandemic than before the pandemic. I have a friend who has been in publishing for his entire career, has been in magazine publishing as an editor. And coming out of the COVID, he just decided that is not at all what he wanted to do anymore. That he was done doing that. And although he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do, he knew that he loved the ocean. And so he decided that he was going to go become an L.A. County lifeguard. And is currently right in the middle of tryouts as the oldest guy out there. Because why not? He only lived once and he decided the time to do this, to chase this dream, that time is now. Melinda and I have some friends also who uh, have had a really influential careers in Washington, D.C. as lobbyists, specifically focusing on food and making sure that people around the world have food, have run in local government out in the Washington state. Smart movers and shakers, brilliant people. When the pandemic hit, they decided whatever's next, uh, it's time for a change. And so they sold their house and they bought a motorhome and they're just driving. And they don't know where they're going to live next, but they think they'll know it when they see it. And they're just out traveling right now, having this adventure. I, I know someone else who's been saving up for a house in Mexico that he thought would be a family home. He thought this would be a one day sort of thing, something that he would do when he's 40, 50, 60. But now it's today. And he's no longer going to wait any longer because he feels like time is just short. He has kids now, and it's going to happen now, and he has no idea how he's going to pay for it, but it's just got to happen today. And I thought that's what's so interesting is as we come out of the pandemic, things that were essential before are now optional. These things that we would have organized our lives around, these things that had our heart, these things that dictated where we're going to go in the future, how we're going to allocate resources, suddenly these things that were the kind of foundations of our life, they're now less so. They have less of our hearts. We're less passionate about them. We're more willing to consider doing something dramatically different. And this is not just a California thing or a West Coast thing, or a United States thing. Since this was a global pandemic, people around the world are asking bigger questions about their lives and what they want to do and where they want to be soon. I'm willing to bet that you probably have done a little bit of this yourself. 
where you've come out of the pandemic and as you've moved into this new era, you're now asking new questions about your career, maybe about how you're saving, maybe about how you want to retire, maybe about where you want to travel, maybe about how many activities you want for your kids, more or less. Suddenly now there are these new questions that you're asking due to what you saw in the last 12 months. And you might not have the answers yet, you just know that you have questions and you're trying to figure out what's next. How you answer some of these questions, they actually are going to shape your life. They are the substance of our life because it is about relationships. It's about our future. It's about our finances. But it is also about our relationship with God. Because I think for a lot of people, our relationship with God was something that was kind of sprinkled on top of every other relationship. It kind of filled in the gaps. It was, as I've said in the past, a spoke in the wheel. But as we went into the pandemic, suddenly faced with the reality of death or sickness, uh, fear, not knowing exactly what the future was going to bring, suddenly sprinkling a little bit of faith on our life didn't work. It didn't bring us the level of peace or security or comfort that we wanted. And so with the questions about future and direction and money is also this question of who is God going to be to me now? And who will I be to God? How much of my life will I give him? And how can I become more involved or more spiritual? These are questions that people are asking everywhere these days. If we're going to ask those questions, then I think it's good for us to actually go and see what Jesus says about this. Because Jesus actually gives some really specific teaching about what should be important to every single person. There was a time when people asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is the one thing that I have to make sure that I obey in the Bible? What is the most essential teaching? And his answer was to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, which was Moses' kind of last words before he died. And he went back to Moses' words, and he highlights this prayer of Moses, which is called the Shema, is out of Deuteronomy 6. And he says, this is the most important thing, that you learn to love God and that you learn to love others. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be studying Jesus' words and Deuteronomy 6 so that we could build our life on the most important thing. What a shame it would be if we built our lives on things that weren't that important. If the things that were important to us before the pandemic were simply the things that were important to us afterwards, that we never paused to ask the bigger questions or to reevaluate our life. So for the next four weeks, we want to study the foundations of our life. We want to see what's in the center of our motivations, what we're pursuing, what we're passionate about, and where God fits into all of that. I think it's going to be a fun end of the summer. The name of the sermon series is The Most Important Thing, or The Greatest Thing, uh, what we're saying, studying this passage. And we're going to begin where Jesus began in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bibles, you turn there and stand with me. We're going to read what is called the Shema, which is an ancient Jewish prayer. Shema in Hebrew means hear, which is the first word in the prayer. So it says this. This is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, 
<laughs> Lord, each day, uh, we certainly have the ability to waste time, to pursue things that don't matter, or to simply get stuck looking at our phones, or binge-watching TV, and Lord, precious minutes are gone. And that's normal for a day. But Lord, we know that we are also capable of stringing those days together into weeks and months and seasons where we're not making the most of life. We know, Lord, that for some of us coming out of the pandemic, we've looked at how we've spent years and seasons and just, we want more. And yet, God, the option of how we actually pursue more feels big and hard. We don't know how to necessarily turn over a totally new page and and to give you all of ourself, to make the most of the minutes. So God, we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to see our lives as you see it, that you'd help us to see uh, the potential and the invitation that you have to walk closer with you, because we desire to do so. And teach us from your word today, God. We're blessed to be able to open it. Thank you for it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, a couple weeks ago, my daughter, Piper, she was actually exposed to someone who had COVID. And with that came all of the protocol that you have to do now, going and getting tested and making sure she was clear so that she could go back out into society and could kind of begin her life. And as we were waiting in urgent care, there was a small box on the doorway of one of the doors as you walked in. And, And Piper said, Dad, what is that box? And I could not have been any more excited because in this moment I had a chance to teach my daughter about the Old Testament. And there is nothing I love more than teaching people about the Old Testament. And I said, daughter of mine, this is a mezuzah. A mezuzah is a tiny little box that inside of it has a tiny little scroll. And on on that scroll is written the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now the reason why that Shema is on the scroll and the mezuzah on the door is from the end of the Shema. It says, teach these things. That God is one. And to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teach them to your children. Write them on your doorposts. Say them as you rise, as you go to sleep. So very Orthodox Jews still do this. They literally, literally write the Shema on a scroll and put it there in a mezuzah on the door so they could obey the teaching. This is how important the Shema was. In fact, in Israel today, if you were there, the most Orthodox of Jews will recite the Shema when they wake up in the morning and when they go to bed in the evening. That is how central it was. Now, why? Why is this passage so important? So important that even today you have people who are writing it on doorways and still reciting it in Israel. Part of it is due to the historic nature of it. So Israel had been in Egypt as slaves for 430 years. They knew that God had made a commitment to their ancestor Abraham and a promise to him that they would become as many as the sand on the seashore. But they had been slaves for a really long time, and most of that time without God ever speaking to them. And so part of the Shema, the teaching here, was to tell them who God was and how he was different than the gods they had ever known in Egypt. That he was one who was totally powerful and a God of love. Not only that, but they were also going into the land of Canaan, which was going to be a land filled with these cruel idols that demanded that you worship them with shed blood and the burned flesh of other human beings. 
So as they're going into this land, this Shema is meant to remind them that God is one, that he is alone, that he is powerful, and that he is loving. And this fact is going to help anchor them from the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan and help them remain true and faithful to Yahweh as they begin this new journey with him. Now this call to love Yahweh is powerful. When it says here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's a huge command. He's not saying love God like we kind of passively or casually would say love God. It goes into detail of that we're to love God with every piece of ourselves. That we don't just get to love him with our heart or mind or simply with acts of service. We're to bring the totality of ourselves to God and love him with it. And it says, not only that, we don't get to hold anything in reserve in our love of God. It says, love him completely. Love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And Jesus' teaching on this is this, is that this is the most important thing that you can do. That if you get this right, everything else in your life will fall into place. It'll make sense. Suddenly it works. And if you don't get this right, well, then it doesn't matter what your career is or how well your dating life goes or how much money you make in Bitcoin. None of those things will in the end matter if you get this wrong. It is the most important thing. Now today we're going to focus on how we love God with all of our heart. Next week we're going to do mind, and then after that will be soul and strength. So for the next four weeks, we're going to focus this and try to ask, how do we truly love God with all of ourselves? Now, loving God with our whole heart is interesting. I think there's a couple passages in the Bible give us kind of an analogy what it looks like. There's a story about a man named Jacob who falls in love with a woman named Rachel. Now, he love, falls in love with her so to such a depth that he goes to her father and says, I want to marry her. But her father says, yes, you can marry her if you will work for me for seven years before you can marry her. And he says, yes. But what's interesting is the verse that comes after that because it says, and so Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel, but those years felt like days to him because of his love for her. That's wholehearted romantic love of someone. She had all of his heart and he loved her in this way. So we have seen wholehearted romantic love. There's also a story in the Bible about a guy named Nehemiah who is working in Babylon, but he is a Jew. And he hears that Jerusalem's walls have been torn down. And it says that when he heard that the walls were torn down, he fasted and mourned and wept for Jerusalem and for his people. And then, because he loved them with his whole heart, he moved out of Babylon, went back to Jerusalem, and dedicated his life to rebuilding the city that he loved and the people that he cared for. That is being wholehearted in your love for your work or your people or your country, for the people of God. And so we see in Scripture this kind of wholehearted love and what it might look like. And maybe you've seen it in your life as well. Maybe someone has come along and captured your heart and you love them with your whole heart. Maybe you do love your career with your whole heart or surfing with your whole heart. Maybe there's a dog in your life that you love with your whole heart or kids. It's weird that I put dog before kids. But nonetheless, we know what it's like to love with our whole heart. But chances are you only get like three or four of those in life. 
it's not a normal thing to love with our whole hearts. Usually we love something a little bit, but when we love truly, sacrificially, with all of ourselves, it is not something that happens often. In fact, some of you are still waiting to find the sort of career that you could love with your whole heart, or to find the sort of person that you could love with your whole heart, and you are just longing for it, and you want it, and it's killing you that you don't have it yet. You see, we want to love in that way, and we spend most of our life chasing it and trying to find it. What the Bible says, though, is that you already have it. You have already experienced wholehearted love because it says that this is how God has loved you and I. He has not held any part of himself back. He has not reserved any of his love for us, that God loves us with his whole heart. Uh, so Jeremiah 31.1 says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love, I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I love this word everlasting. It is so huge. Think about the idea that God has loved us with an everlasting love. That means that he has always loved us. There was not a thing that we did that earned his love. There is no sort of thing that we did to somehow move into his love. That he has loved us from before all of creation. And that he will love us regardless of what you do or what you fail to do, regardless of how big or small your faith is, or your ability to be the sort of person that you want to be, God loves you with this everlasting love that will continue on until ultimately you see him face to face. It will not change. It will not end. It will not ultimately become like that old couple who is sitting at Denny's, eating a moon over my hammy, not talking to one another, simply living out their life in bored partnership. His love will be unchanging, that he will love you as much from the first moment he thought of you to the last moment where you were there in his presence. His love is unchanging, unceasing, and he is relentlessly kind to us with his kind, with this love. And as we move into the New Testament, the love only gets greater for us. 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we know what God's love is, that Jesus lay down his life for us. It's not just that it is an unending love, but a sacrificial love. That God was willing to be diminished and demeaned and defamed by other people out of his love for us. It is the purest picture of love that we have of the sacrificial love. And so God has loved us with his whole heart. And he asks that we now love him back with our whole heart. But how? What does it mean for us to love God with our whole heart? You know, whenever the Bible talks about how we are to love God with our whole heart, it usually uses kind of a comparison to talk about how we're supposed to love him. Uh, three stories about how God asks us to value him above all things. We're told of the rich young ruler who wanted to follow after Jesus and said, you can't follow after me unless you actually give up your wealth, and then you can. So you have to value me more than you value the money. He told a story that uh, at one time he says, truly nobody who loves their mother or father more than me is worthy of me. 
He says, if you want to know what it means to love me, it means in comparison to every other person out there, even your closest relationships, you have to value me even more than that. He says, I am so valuable that I am like this treasure that was put in a field that a man found. And then he covered up that treasure, went back, sold everything he had so he could get the money, so he could buy the field, because the treasure was worth more than whatever he had had beforehand. That is a comparison of value, that he is more valuable than that. Or the pearl of great worth, right? That there was like this pearl the size of a frisbee. And it was so valuable that a man sold everything he could to possess the pearl. That is what God says he is to be to us, that we are to value him above every other thing, which just causes us to pause. It should cause us to kind of think and and do an assessment. Do I value God more than anything? More than everything? Or do I not? He values you more than anything, more than even himself, even giving up his own son out of love for you. And his request is that we love him back. Where are you at? If you had to rank your loves, where does God stand? He asks that we would love him in that way. And one of the ways we actually begin to grow in our love for God is by loving him, not just with our hearts and not just compared to everything else, but that we would give him an emotional kind of love, a love that we feel actually in our hearts. And I have to tell you, this is so uh, the opposite of everything I was always taught growing up. I was taught that our emotions can't be trusted, that they change too quickly, that they are unstable, that they frequently lead us poorly. And I think that makes sense because I think all of us have done something in a moment of emotion that we've regretted later or that has had consequences later, has hurt someone later. We have seen that emotion can get us into trouble, and so part of it understands that sort of teaching, but it's not simply that our emotions can lead us poorly. One of the things that I was taught growing up was that the only thing that was stable compared to my emotions was the Word of God, and that I had to anchor everything on the Word of God, and if I was feeling too high or too low emotionally, I should discard those things because those could not be trusted. Now, this comes from theological reasons. Uh, In the book of Jeremiah, there's a very famous passage that's used to talk about this. Jeremiah is living at a time when Israel has forgotten to love God with their whole heart, and they are now worshiping the gods of Canaan. Specifically, when Jeremiah says this, the mothers of Israel have begun to sacrifice their own children to these new gods. And Jeremiah looks at what's happening And he thinks, what on earth can happen in a woman's heart, a mother's heart, that would make her sacrifice her children? And he concludes, the human heart, it's it's evil above all things. It cannot be trusted. He says, it's full of a restless evil. And we've seen that. We've seen that in our heart of hearts at times, we have a desire for vengeance or punishment or lust or whatever it is that is inside it or that at times scares even us. We've seen how dark our hearts can be. And we have seen how emotion can lead people astray. I mean, just go look at the story of Samson. I just laugh because sometimes we think of Samson as being the sort of person to model our lives over. That is not why he's in the Bible. He is there to tell us how not to be, not what to be like. Because Samson follows every emotional desire he has. He lives his life by lust 
and rage, vengeance, a deep sense of pride, shame, wanting to just harm everybody, light foxes on fire, and then send them into houses. He's a mess. You could look at Samson and say, this is where emotion can take us. And in ministry, I can tell you, I've worked with so many people who have decided that they need to follow their hearts in this moment and have blown up their marriages, harmed their children, hurt their spouse, hurt the relationships, because ultimately what they wanted to do, they decided didn't matter really what the costs were. And we know also in ministry that it's fairly easy to manipulate people with emotion, that if we turn the lights down just low enough and play the music just quiet enough, that we could cause you to feel emotion and to respond to God emotionally instead of a, from a place of true, authentic response and really knowing him. So I understand why I've always been taught that we have to be careful about our emotions and why we need to actually root ourselves on the word of God. But there's an incredible downside to that as well. First and foremost, we end up then emphasizing our minds over our hearts. We end up with a very intellectual faith. But friends, our minds are just as fallen as our hearts. And we can actually pursue our minds, but it makes us have a lower sense of joy. It takes away any sort of sense of mercy or compassion. Suddenly we don't have a heart for evangelism or for the broken. And suddenly we are only thinking and never feeling and we're becoming robots and I think our faith in these moments becomes far more masculine. And it loses the beauty of the image of God in the feminine that's meant to be represented there as well. That we're meant to be thinkers and feelers. Because let's be honest, whenever we open up the Bible, we encounter a God who has emotions. And he has emotions that we would consider bad emotions. He gets angry. He gets jealous. He has wrath. He loves. He takes joy. He weeps. God feels things. And when we move in the New Testament, we see Jesus who feels fear, who too becomes angry, who experiences grief. And so if the Christian life is learning to be more like Jesus, who is doing exactly what his heavenly father does and says, that means that you and I need to begin to connect our head and our heart together. We need to begin to feel things in our heart if we're truly going to be like Jesus. And if our hearts remain hardened or immature, if our emotional bandwidth remains small, we are missing out on being like Jesus in key ways and on being able to travel with him where he wants to take us. Because part of the promise of the entire New Testament is that Jesus is going to come and change our hearts. He's going to give us new hearts. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, I'm going to give them an undivided heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in them. I'm going to remove from their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That was the promise that the prophets waited on one day our hearts would be renewed. Psalm 51.19 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. The hope, the prayer of the psalmist was to have a heart that could be synced up like God's. So the goal for us about loving God with our emotions is not for us to become more emotional, but that our emotions would begin to reflect his uh, there's, there's something I've been thinking about lately. And I've been just been thinking about God's emotions and my emotions. 
And there's that song that says, you know, God, break my heart with what breaks yours. Um, and I so badly want that to be me. I want that when God weeps over something, for, that I would weep as well. And I live at times with this fear that what God is weeping about, I'm actually tolerating. And there's a chance that if I'm living enough in the flesh that what God weeps about, I actually might be celebrating. Or that the things that God celebrates, I'm ambivalent about. Or the things that God takes joy in, I'm actually mourning. I mean, we find these stories happening in the Bible all the time. And I never want to be in a place where my heart is so emotionally stunted or I'm so emotionally immature that my heart doesn't actually look like Christ. It still looks far too much like mine. And so how do we actually do that, though? Because here's the thing. We can't simply just turn our hearts on and flip a switch so that suddenly our hearts begin to function and act like Jesus's. We need his profound help to do that. And the good news is that he loves to provide that help. I had a mentor in college that oftentimes when he preached, he would cry. And I remember being so uncomfortable originally when he did that, but then I began to think about it saying, I don't think I've ever had that kind of emotional response to God, ever. And I want to experience God in such power and beauty and nearness that my heart cannot help but respond. Because I promise you, my friend did not want to cry. But he was so tied into what God was doing that it was simply one of these things that would happen that he could not talk about Jesus without just tearing up in love and appreciation for him. And so I watched that and I thought, uh, I'm going to pray for that. God, I'm going to pray that you'd begin to help my heart move with the things that move your heart. God, I want to ask that you'd help me feel the emotions that you feel. And God has been faithful to do that to me and for me uh, in ways that I don't always enjoy. I'm sure uh, if you've ever watched me preach, you have probably seen me get choked up, break down, freak out on stage with emotion. And in those moments, I hate it with all that I have. That is not what I want to do up there. And yet, I also don't want it to stop. Because if ultimately I could talk about the beauty of the gospel, what Jesus could do, and how he changed our hearts and his commitment to us, if that could just roll past me and I could say it without being moved, then I'm out of step with the Spirit. I'm willing to tolerate the embarrassment so that I could be like Jesus and live and act and feel like he does. And that's what I want for us, is that we begin to say, God, help me have a heart like yours. I want to feel the things that you feel. And these aren't simply things that we feel towards God. It's important that we feel them towards each other. When Jesus actually talks about uh, what the greatest commandment is, he follows it up with the second greatest commandment. This is Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. A teacher of the law said to him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he said this, And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, the prophets, and these go hand in hand. So these two ideas go together. We are to love God and love others. And if I am to love God wholeheartedly, because God has loved me wholeheartedly, the very natural response to that is that then I am called to love others wholeheartedly. That this is meant to be something that overflows from God out to the world. And it begins certainly in our families. 
And let me say this. There is something wrong if we, th- if we try to love God wholeheartedly, but we allow ourselves to simply love our spouse half-heartedly, or our parents half-heartedly, or that difficult child half-heartedly. We can't get into a spot where somehow our relationship with God looks different than our relationship with people because it's meant to be this overflow. God wants us to experience his love in such a profound amount that I cannot help but hand it off to others. And that begins with those who are the nearest, dearest, and closest to me. There is this old joke in counseling um, that we do, uh, that frequently comes up whenever we're doing premarital counseling, and it's this, that emotions are like crayons. The problem is that men got the eight-pack of crayons and women got the 64-pack, right? Uh, And it's good for that kind of laugh right there. Deidre, thank you. I appreciate it. But the more that I've actually worked with couples and specifically worked with men, I think that saying that men have eight emotions is actually an overstatement. I think most of the time men are working with three or four main emotions. It's anger and it's lust and it's a sense of honor and it's a sense of shame. And they're just operating and living out of these emotions all of the time. And the more sensitive emotions are things that are untapped into by the men uh, in their marriages, by them as fathers, and it trickles down into their sons, and we just keep perpetuating it again and again and again. That we have this picture of masculinity, which is tough and rugged and firm and faithful and provides, but lacks all of the other tender things that are truly needed. And I think if we're going to love wholehearted, then men, we have to begin to lean into some of the emotions which perhaps feel more feminine to us or certainly foreign to us, and we need to move into them knowing that they too reflect the heart of God, and that being the husbands and fathers and sons and brothers that we want to be lie in having um, deeper emotional connections than perhaps what we've had modeled to us or we've had been told are for us to have as well. And for women, I feel far less uh, prepared to comment on how you can grow emotionally, but I would say this. With that 64-pack of crayons, you have the full range of emotional experiences that you could frequently draw from. But what I see happen sometimes in marriages is that those emotions are being like scribbled literally hard onto the paper, and it's emotional overreaction, emotional overexpression, so the emotions are something that actually are spiraling out of control out at times. And it is spiraling out of control onto the family, onto the husband, onto the kids, and then onto themselves with shame and what they did and how they couldn't, and the emotions are, are taking control. And the mother is something who's, someone who's scared. <laughs> People are scared of in the house because she's crazy. The goal is not for us to under-express emotion or over-express emotion, but that our heart would come to be like Jesus, and that would come to be like him. And chances are, if you are emotionally overreacting or emotionally underreacting, there's a reason for it. If there's emotions that you never feel, or if you tend to explode, there's probably a reason for it. 
And it comes back to probably what you saw, what was modeled for you. It's a coping strategy. It's something that you use to protect yourself. But what God wants is for you to bring either emotion back or to come and step in. Either way, we come to be like Jesus and we bring our emotions to him. It is to have a heart that is being renewed and restored and becoming fully alive in him. And again, it begins with having this relationship with God and moving down into our families. Because I want to tell you, if you are emotionally shut off, or if you are emotionally blowing out, you're going to be relationally shut out. If you are emotionally shut off, or if you're emotionally blowing out, then you're going to be relationally shut out by the people closest to you. Because either you have nothing to give or it's all too much. And instead, what God says is, come to me and come experience my love again. Come and be loved wholeheartedly by me so that you can love others wholeheartedly. Friends, being the husband, wife, spouse, child, brother that you want to be, it begins with knowing again the love of God that he has for you already as his child. I mean, let's pray. I want to ask that you'd pray this prayer to God with me and invite him to actually do some work in you right now. This is Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You see if there be any wicked way in me. And God, would you lead me in the way everlasting? God, we need you to search our hearts and explain to us what's happening there. God, would you give us a desire to truly experience you from the depths of our heart with a wholeheartedness? And God, would you show us the things that are in the way of that actually happening? The old scars, the old habits, the old wounds. And God, we invite you to come in and begin to heal. Search us and show us, God. We don't want to be a half-hearted people with you or with each other, so we ask for your help. And if tonight you feel like you need to talk to someone about it, we have our prayer team around the room. They are not therapists, but they're people that might be able to help you see the fingerprints of God in your life and help you see what he's doing. So we're going to continue on in worship and give to God our whole heart.